Well, great singing tonight, and uh, we are so thankful again that all of you have come out to uh, be in this worship service this evening. Now, I am, I am very, very grateful for two things. I'm grateful for a lot of things, but I'm grateful for two things tonight. One, of course, is Brother Heinrich is with us, and I'll get that in just a minute, but the Petro family is back. They've been on vacation for two weeks, and to me it seems like almost forever. But uh, the front row is occupied, so thank the Lord for them. We're glad they had a great vacation. They're back with us. Well, most of you are aware that uh, last spring I decided to attend a, a meeting of the a conference of the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Just prior to going to that meeting, uh, which was held in Reno, um, I was looking through the list of GRBC churches and uh, just just seeing where different churches are located and so forth. And I came across the name of a church that intrigued me greatly. And the name of the church was the Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Modesto, California. Amen. Thank you. And I, um, I said, I've got to find out who this pastor is and if he's going to this conference in Reno because I've got to meet this man. So I think it was an email. I think I sent Brother Heinrich an email, and uh, he responded, yes, he was going. And I asked if we could meet in the conference and just uh, speak to one another, get to know one another, and just uh, have a little bit of fellowship, which we were able to do. And so when I went to the conference, I, I met Brother Heinrich for the first time, and we had a chance to talk with one another. I met another pastor there as well that uh, uh, was a, a fine, a fine there are many good people, of course, there, but especially these two particular pastors that are of like mind and doctrine as we are here in Berean Baptist Church. So um, in, in the ensuing time, of course, I, uh, Brother Heinrich and, and I talked, and I asked Brother Heinrich if he would come and preach in our church tonight. Uh, actually, it was last week, and he stood me up. But <laughs> no, he, got, he, he became ill, but he's better now, and his, he and his wife, Ellen, are with us tonight. And I'm just so thankful that uh, I had the opportunity to spend this afternoon with Brother Heinrich and his wife and to learn a little bit about them and, and doctrines that they hold, things that they believe. And uh, I just praise the Lord that there are other, uh, other men out there who, who do believe the same doctrines that we're preaching right here. And so I've asked Brother Heinrich to preach for us tonight. Brother Heinrich, we are so glad to have you. I want to ask you to come now, if you would, please. And, and you just bring the message that God laid on your heart, Brother. Thank you so much for coming. Is that part of the punishment and suffering that pastors go through? Good evening. We're happy to be here. I have a, a feeling that... Uh, He's probably more enthusiastic a preacher than I am, but I will do my best to not put any of you to sleep. It's a pleasure to be here. My wife and I um, have spent last yesterday and last night at Bodega Bay, and uh, we're going back there tonight, and then we'll go home tomorrow. But what a lovely place that is. We uh, are just enjoying it immensely. Thank you for the privilege of uh, allowing us to come and particularly to be able to share something from God's Word. Then I get here and I find that what I'm going to share is from the Gospel of John 
and you've been traveling a while in the Gospel of John, so sorry. We're going to stay with it anyway. Would you please turn to John chapter 5? In the first four chapters of John, I'm sure you noticed the emphasis about Jesus being the light of the world. Did you not? Very predominant. Now in chapter 5 through chapter 8, you're going to notice something else. Uh, Not about Jesus particularly, only indirectly. You're going to notice that there is a growing hostility against Jesus. It's very intense. Uh, There is a term begins right at the beginning of chapter 5 that continues called the Jews. Did you see it? Look again in verse 10. The Jews. And then again in verse 18. Therefore the Jews. I don't think you can miss it from now on. You're going to stumble over it repeatedly. Uh, That's a term that could be good or bad. For example, salvation is of the Jews. It's a good way it's used in John. But you'll notice this is not in a good light. It's referring to the hostility that's coming to Jesus from the leaders, the Jewish leaders of that day. And believe me, it's intense. Yea, it's murder in no kinder sense of the word. Now, some of the things that I want to share with you from this passage, background-wise to begin with, it says, after this thing, or after these things, however you wish to pronounce it, read it, uh, remember that when the Bible's written, it don't always have to do with immediately after. In fact, I think this setting we're going to read takes place two or three months after the chapter before. So I'll keep that in mind when you read that you don't Read it as, as, as if it has to happen next thing when it says after this, okay? So um, I just wanted to say that in passing. Uh, there's, this is a difficult time in, religion, uh, in Israel's history right now. Roman policy has just changed. It was the policy of Rome to let Israel perform their own capital punishment, usually done by stoning, Remember? But that has now changed in the last few months. And no longer is that possible. Uh, Rome has said, you cannot do it anymore. We will take care of all capital punishment. Um, There is an increase also of zealot activity in the lands. In fact, one of the very prominent rabbis has prophesied that Jerusalem will fall to the Romans... Uh, and, there will, and the destruction of Jerusalem will take place. And so the Jewish people who honor this man hear this prophecy and understand that uh, if we've got to do everything in our power to not let the zealots get us in trouble to where we don't have a land and don't have the freedoms we do have. Well, it's obvious then when Jesus comes on the scene and becomes more popular and big crowds are following him that the people of, of uh, the Jews and even the Romans are sensing perhaps he's the biggest zealot of all. And perhaps he will be, will be the one to bring come it all crashing down upon us and we'll lose the freedoms we have. 
And so um, all of that couples in to what's taking place here as we begin in chapter 5 and move ahead. And with that background, it, it, it helps, I think, to understand. And then with that background, it helps you to understand how Jesus reacts to all the hostilities. You know, and we ask the question, how would we be reacting to all the facts, uh, false accusations and the plotting of murder that's going to be taking place here? Um, you see, I think the answer lies in the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. And that lies there with us too. The great crises that happen in our life are best handled when we're bathing in the sovereignty of God. And the Lord can walk right on ahead because God is in charge. You understand? There's a neat little account given in Bunyan's uh, prog- uh, Pilgrim's Progress story of, of um, uh, ferocious beasts along the path. But Bunyan don't pay any attention to the beasts. He just keeps his eye on the light that's up ahead and walks right on through them. And that's what the Lord's doing. He's keeping his eyes on the purpose that God has for him and, and knowing that the Father is in charge and he'll take care of it. And you know that's good for us too, isn't it? What do we focus on? The fury, furious beasts? Or do we see the light of the world, Jesus Christ, and know that our God is sovereign and he'll take care of us no matter what's against us? Well, as we enter into chapter 5, we enter into the third sign miracle. It's about a man at the pool of Bethesda that has been lame a long time. You ever hear people say, uh, God helps those that help themselves? Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody, so don't raise your hand here. Uh, I was going to ask you, do you believe that? Uh, You know, that's not true if you read your Bible. God is a God that helps the helpless, not those that help themselves. And until you know you're helpless, well, you go without help. That's why. And that's a picture here, laying beside the pool of the Thursday, you see helpless people. Helpless people. There was, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these days a great multitude of impotent folks, of blind, of lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the waters. Whosoever then first after the trouble of the waters, stepped in, was made well of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been thus now a long time, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made well? Uh, the impotent man answered and said, Sir... I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. 
And immediately the man was made well and took up his bed and walked. And the same day was the Sabbath. Well, we'll get back to the Sabbath. Let's look before we get there at these thoughts that's before us. Now, when you're in John's gospel, you remember that John told us why he, why he wrote the gospel. And whenever somebody tells you why they do something that's in the Bible, don't change it, okay? That's good enough. Okay? Now, John's good at that. He tells us that in, in his epistles, too. He tells us why he wrote. You'll remember the count in John 20. He says, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why'd you write, John? I wrote to promote faith that Jesus is the Son of God. You see? And uh, so uh, we know that, that, and these are called signs in John's gospel. Now, uh, I had to look at a lot of signs coming here because I'm not familiar with your place. And, and it was not, I even missed some. But it is, it's important to have signs. Signs point to Sebastopol. They point to Bodega Bay. They point to Roanoke Park. I didn't see any for Roanoke Park. I seen some other town over here. But anyway signs they point to something well i'm not sure what the first sign pointed to when jesus turned water into wine you got that figured out maybe the sign is that god can take something nothing and make it something i don't know but uh, there's a sign that's pointing to there it certainly promotes faith because it says the disciples believed on him then was the nobleman's son you remember jesus he wanted to come with him to heal his son, I believe. And he just spoke the word. And he was healed and he left. Remember? The sign and the power of the spoken word. My goodness. Amazing. Well, this is the third one. And, and it's also a sign pointing to something. I may not be able to know for sure what, but I see some things that it might be saying to us. Do you know that... Uh, First of all, that he had to, you had to go through the sheep gate to get to Bethesda. Did you read that? Now, when I was in, I've been in Israel a lot of times, and the sheep gate's still there. It's called St. Stephen's Gate also today, because later on, that's where Stephen was stoned, at the sheep gate. And right outside the sheep gate, one day a week, everybody brings their sheep, and it's a marketplace, and people buy sheep. You know, fat, fat, fat tail sheep, they call them. They go around, and I see them poking the back to see how much fat is in the behind and uh, to check out what sheep they want. And uh, that's, now what's a sheep purchase for in the Bible? For sacrifice. You know, what's the greatest sacrifice that ever took place? The Lord Jesus Christ. And what's the result of that great sacrifice? Mercy. Bethesda stands for mercy. And so you go through the sheep gate, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to the place of mercy, Bethesda. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know if that's what it's trying to say or not, but I see that there. And I think it's a great story. That Bethesda was a bunch of porches. Porches is a 
a building with no wall, no walls, just a, port, just a roof over it. There was a bunch of porches surrounding it, and there was people around it. There was impotent people. They needed mercy. There were blind people, and they needed mercy. There were the halt and lame and crippled, and they needed mercy. There were the totally paralyzed, and they needed mercy. What a pitiful sight. Perhaps hundreds of them there. In need of mercy. And they waited almost in vain. I don't know what you do with that angel that come down and stirred the water. And I, I don't want to mess up what your pastor says. Whatever he says, right, okay? But it sounds to me like a hocus pocus. I don't know. Some superstition. Because there's no place in the Bible anywhere else that this kind of thing is justified. So if that's true, I don't know if it is. They waited utterly in vain, trusting in superstition. You know there's lots of people today that's trusting in the prayers they make to some saint. Superstition. Prayers to Mary. Superstition. In vain they wait. And I, I kind of think that's true with this man. He was waiting there in vain. With, he really had nothing to hope for. Stirring of the water. What's that? I don't know. I don't know. But there was something he didn't know. Coming through the sheep gate and into the area of the pool of Bethesda was a man. And he walks by all these people. You can just see him walking through this sick one laying here and that one laying there. Can't you picture it? They're all over the place. And he comes to a certain man. That's what it says. It's as if he was looking for him. Isn't that interesting? <sighs> hmm. And this man had been sick for 38 years. And maybe even by the pool 38 years. I don't know that. You think after a while you just throw in the towel and quit, right? Not if you would like to be made whole bad enough. And Jesus says to him, do you want to be made whole? Now he say, well, of course he did. What do you say that for? Well, I really believe there's people that love being in their sickness and getting all the sympathy. You ever run into those? Yeah. And some sink so low in depression that have no hope at all. And all they want to do is die. Or is Jesus saying, will you confess how much you need me? Hmm? I think so. Will you come to the end of yourself and you're crawling on your belly and trying to get over to the pool in time? Will you come to the point where you say, I have to have help. 
Now notice the certain man answered him, didn't he? He didn't recognize who Jesus was, or he might not have answered him that way. He didn't know Jesus could heal him with just a word. In fact, he thought he had to do something. He had to crawl over there quick enough to get in after the water was stirred. He had to do something. That's, that's very true with us. You get outside this building where you've been taught the gospel and taught properly, and you're going to run into a world out there, even a church-going world, that think they've got to do something to get mercy from Jesus. It's really a very selfish, self-reliant thing, isn't it? To think you've got to do something. Well, Jesus just simply said when he told him, I can't do it, get over there, I can't get there in time, I can't do it. He just simply said, roll up your bed and walk. <laughs> roll up your bed and walk. And the, the, the certain man says, well, that's a silly thing to say. I've tried that for 38 years. Did he say that? No, there's something clicked, didn't there? Somehow this man trusted the authority in his word. And without questioning a thing, he rolled up his cotton walked. I tell you, I'm impressed. Doubly. Always impressed with the power of our great God. The mercy he shows. But I'm impressed that this man had confidence in the word of Christ. Just a few minutes earlier, he couldn't even walk to the water. Now he can roll up his bed and walk wherever he wants to go. He was cured instantaneously and absolutely, completely. In fact, the cure, it says, you're well, he said to him a little later. That word well is in the perfect tense, Pastor. It means you are completely well. It's a completed action. Well, anyway. Let's think about this now. Jesus grants mercy. How did he do it? Did the man qualify in some way? Did the man call out and say, Have mercy on me, Lord? Did he? Come on, you guys. He didn't. He grants mercy sovereignly. That means he did it, period. That's what that means. He didn't qualify for mercy, that's for sure. He didn't work for mercy. He didn't even cry for mercy. But God sovereignly gave him mercy. Doesn't that sound like Romans 9? You been there lately? I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. So that it's not him that runneth, nor of him that willeth, but of God that gives the mercy. Do you understand that? Don't ever forget that. He walked by them all. And he came to a certain one. And he gave him mercy and he walked back by them all. Back out of there. Did you see that? Sovereign mercy. 
to whom he will. And if you don't like that kind of a God, well, shame on you. That's the one of the Bible. It really is, folks. What a wonderful God to be in charge of everything. Let's see, if you were in charge, I'd tremble in my boots. And if I was in charge, you'd tremble in everything. But God's in charge. That's all we need to hear. So Jesus here pictures that his sovereign grace is placed on elect ones who are totally unable to save themselves, doesn't he? It's a picture, it's a pointer, it's a sign that points to Jesus, sovereignly saving whom he will. And uh, that man cannot save themselves. They're totally unable. That's called total depravity. Absolutely. Notice he always takes the initiative. No man can come to the Father except the Father draw him, he says in chapter 6. He always takes the initiative. You see, he's got sheep. And his sheep will hear his voice. And his sheep will follow him. And the ones that don't hear his voice, he says, it's because you're not my sheep. Sovereign Grace. Do you see why we named our church in Modesto? Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. See why we named it that? You bet. You got it right out of here, chapter 5. We also got it out of chapter 6. It's also in chapter 7. <laughs> oh, man, we love God's grace. Did you notice there at the end of verse 9 where I said we'd come back to that? And we still can. I'm going to take the whole time. Is that all right? And it says in verse, I'm having fun now. And it says, verse 9, and the same day was the Sabbath, Sabbath. wonder why I had to say that there. Now, the Sabbath was a very, the very important day in the life of an Israelite. Do you remember the Ten Commandments? Do you think they're very important? You betcha. Oh, do you remember the fourth one? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I'm sure your pastors taught you about the time that Israel was carried away into captivity for 70 years. Do you know why they were carried away into captivity for 70 years? Well, idolatry, etc., etc. But the Bible says in one place, in two places, really, because they broke the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. In fact, let me read you one verse. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has enjoyed her Sabbaths, As long as she lay desolate, she shall keep Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. The people were to remain in captivity for 70 years so that all the broken Sabbath would be paid for and kept. You understand? 
wow, Sabbath was important. It was so important that in the minds and memories of the Israelites, they never wanted to go back into captivity again. And so they built big, tall walls around the Sabbath day, all the way around. And year after year, they kept putting more mortar on top. And you know what that wall was? I think you do. It was their own laws. Because they wanted to make sure that they didn't break the fourth commandment. But that never happened again. And so they put all these laws around God's law. And as the years went by, they become as much a part of the law as the law itself. And so it became, by the time Jesus got there, if you broke one of their wall laws, you were broken the law of God. Amazing, isn't it? They never wanted it to happen again. The law says that man is not to travel on the Sabbath day. It definitely says that, folks. Um, Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burdens on the Sabbath day, Jeremiah 17, 21. So they developed a regulation saying one could not travel over a thousand yards. However, if a rope was tied across the street, then the whole street technically became one's house and a man could walk a thousand yards beyond the rope. That's very logical, isn't it? Jeremiah prohibits carrying a burden on the Sabbath day. And so they asked the question, is a handkerchief a burden? They answered yes. But if it's worn as a part of your clothing, it's not. You didn't laugh at that. For the Lord had hoard these man-made laws, even though they came into existence for a good purpose, to make sure the people of Israel never broke the law of God of the Sabbath again. That's such an important day. But he hated all of their laws because it enslaved his people with man-made regulations. It became ritual without the people's heart. Formalism that elevates things above people, regulations above mercy and grace. It changes people. And they become self-righteous. They become callous to the truth. On this very day where they so tenaciously was keeping their man-made laws and condemning this man for carrying his cot, they're plotting to murder Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. No heart. Now, I just want to say one more thing about the Sabbath, and then we've got a few more minutes. Jesus says in other places in Scripture that he established the Sabbath, said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. I suggest to you when he says he's the Lord of the Sabbath, that means he could suspend it, 
He could remove it. He could alter it. Hmm? If he's the Lord, then he can do that. Now I'll let your pastor tell you how, if he did do that, concerning the Christian's worship on Sunday. You take that on Sunday, probably over here. Yeah, yeah. I want you to observe a few things before we take the next section on real quickly. Did you notice that God's grace is sovereignly given? Walking right by the multitude, he came to a certain man. And this certain man, when he's asked by the Jews, who healed you, doesn't even know his name. He doesn't even know who healed him. Sovereignly he acted. I want you to observe the perversion of the law. The Jews superintended their hair-splitting restrictions instead of looking upon the Sabbath as a day of gratitude for their salvation, as a day they could rest from their own works in the salvation of the Lord. I want you to observe man's logic. Look at verse 38. I think that's the right verse. Doesn't sound like it's possible. Verse 10 and 11. The Jews therefore said to him, that was cured, it is a Sabbath day. It is unlawful for you to carry the bed, thy bed. And he answered them and said, he that made me well, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. I love that passage. Who told you to do that? the one that had enough authority uh to take away my infirmity of 38 years did it and I obeyed him I like that don't you you betcha don't know his name I want you to observe that the Jews did not want to know his name so they could say thanks or so they could praise God Almighty. Let me keep reading. Then, verse 12, then asked they him, what man is it that, of who said to thee, take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed knew not who it was, for Jesus had moved away a multitude being in that place. Afterwards, Jesus finds him in the temple and said to him, Behold, thou art made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come to you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. They had no desire to have a worship service. A praise get-together. They didn't want a bunch of hymns about the glory of God. They wanted to know who it was so they could figure out a way to murder him. (laughs) 
I lastly want you to notice that Jesus, who healed the body of the infirm man, is also interested in his soul and spirit. Hmm? He walks away from him after he heals him and he's gone. And whether it was that day or the next, it doesn't matter. The man ends up at the temple, probably there to offer up thanksgiving offerings to God for what had happened to him. And Jesus comes up to him and tells him he's the one that did it. And he said, let me read it again. Afterwards, Jesus finds him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come to thee. Now, folks, he don't mean lest you get sicker the next time. He's not talking about that. Like I said, that word well is in the perfect tense. It's a completed action. But what's worse than physical illness? I hope you'll say damnation. Eternal fire. I'm concerned, he's saying to this man that had an infirmity, I'm concerned about your spiritual life even more than your physical life. Yeah. Well, now I've got two more minutes to do a whole bunch more, and so I'm going to just tell you briefly what it is and let you do it yourself. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them. I've had enough of this. Is that what he said? But Jesus answered them, here you go again, you Jews. He didn't say that, did he? I think that's marvelous when you think about it. He could have been so perturbed and so teed off. But he wasn't. He wasn't. And so when you think he's teed off and perturbed at you, read these verses. He patiently begins to explain. My father worketh hitherto and I work. I can work and heal on the Sabbath day because my father works every day. And I and my father are one. If he can work, I can work. If I can work, he can work. Because we're the same. Not the same person, but they're God. We're talking about the unity of the Godhead. I think you got to think with me on this, folks. He wasn't very smart to plot murder and to stand in judgment against the judge of all the earth. But he's kindly saying to him, Do you realize why I can heal on the Sabbath? Because my father does works of mercy all the time while he's saving people every day, seven days a week. And I can do works of mercy because the father and I are one. Well, that's just one argument. They're one in work, but they're also one in will. 
Let's see where we're at. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also be, but said also that God was his father making himself equal with God. Did they understand him? They understood him, didn't they? Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Father can do nothing of himself, but that which he sees the Father, the Son can do nothing of himself, but that which he sees the Father do, uh, for what everything, everything he does, those also he does the Son in the same exact way. I wish I could take the time to give this to you, but let me just say, if there was a difference in the will of the Father and the will of the Son, then there would be two gods. That's right. But their will is one will. And that's what he's telling them. I can heal on the Sabbath because I'm equal with God. Then he keeps on. He says he's equal with the Father in knowledge, verse 20. For the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that he himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. The Father and the Son have no secrets. You tell tell some things to your friends, but you tell everything to your beloved Son. There's no secrets. They're equal in knowledge. And as this continues, he continually arguing for the equality of himself with his Father. They're equal in life-giving in verse 21. For the Father raises up the dead and gives life to them. Even so, the Son gives life to whom he will. And then in verse uh, 22 and 23, they're equal in judgment. For the Father judged no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all men should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Father honoreth, honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father who has sent him. And you can couple all this together. If you won't honor me just as you honor my Father, then my Father will accept nothing from you in the realm of honor. If I am equal with the Father, then I am to receive equal honor from the Father. You see? And therefore, that's why I can heal on the Sabbath, because the Father and I are one. We're equal in work. We're equal in will. We're equal in knowledge. We're equal in judgment. We're equal in giving life. He's arguing repeatedly that he is equal with the Father in no hidden terms. Now, I don't know what it takes to get the Jehovah Witnesses to see this. Do you? And a whole bunch of others, you know. But Jesus has went out of his way to show us that he's equal with the Father. Well, I hope you learned something tonight that was a blessing, if nothing more than a fine review or a review of the fine preaching of your pastor and John. 
And what a privilege to be here tonight. Let's, can I close in prayer and then you come up? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of sharing your word. Oh, Father, we're so thankful that Jesus has been so patient with mankind, even with the Jews that were plotting to kill him. We're thankful, Father, that uh, uh, we have been allowed to see our total inability, and we've been chosen as the certain man was and granted saving mercy. Father, thank you for all that, and may you be honored for uh, even as the Father is in Jesus' name.